This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Philip Miller, the Associate Creative Director at Creature Technology, which is the group that made the Walking with Dinosaurs Arena Spectacular. And many other cool things. Yes. And yeah, so we have a lot to talk about in our interview. And we also have the Dinosaur of the Day, Cedarosaurus, and a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we always like to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Jeremy, Scully, Avery, Crispy, Cody, Joaquin, who recently returned to our patronage, and Jeb from Arkansas, who just joined. So thank you. Yeah, that list is getting really long. That's why I chuckled in a little bit in the beginning. <laughs> it's a good thing. It is. Yeah. Thank you to everybody. We really appreciate all your support. Yes. And if you'd like to help us pay for our trip, which we're leaving on in a couple of days as of this recording, and we will be in the middle of when this episode is released, then please consider signing up for our Patreon. So our page is patreon.com slash I know Dino. Moving on to the news, we have a lot of news. I was kind of trying to frantically catch up with some of the bigger news stories before SVP. Oh my goodness, yes. Because there's going to be a flood of news post-SVP. So up first, we have the second Mementosaurid dinosaur from the Middle Jurassic of Eastern China. Good, more sauropods. Yes, that was written by Xin Chin Ren and others and published in Historical Biology. And the reason I read the title is I really appreciate the fact that they just say that it's the second of something. There's no shame in finding the second of some category. We always it's, need more fossils. Yeah, and it's still a new dinosaur too, so it's an exciting new fossil at that. This time it's a Mementosaurid, as the title says, and those are the dinosaurs, the sauropods specifically which are famous for their incredibly long necks, even for a sauropod. They're just crazy. When you see depictions of these dinosaurs or skeletons, it's like so much neck. It's like half of the dinosaur basically is neck. Crazy amount of neck. Unlike diplodocids, where it's kind of the other way around and they're mostly tail, this is sort of the other end of the spectrum. And mementosaurs were around for most of the Jurassic. This one's from the middle Jurassic, so it's kind of in the middle of the evolution of mementosaurids as well. 
The namesake of the clade is Mementosaurus, and that's from the late Jurassic, which was our dinosaur of the day back in episode 117, if you want to hear more about Mementosaurids generally. And its giant neck. Yes. I was going to go a little bit into how it was named, but I figured just direct towards that episode. So <laughs> this one's named Anhuilong Diboensis, and Anhuilong is after the Anhui province plus dragon. So there you go. It's the dragon from Anhui. And then Diboensis, they say, is after the locality where it was found. But I have no idea what they're talking about because I couldn't find Dibo anything anywhere in the article. So maybe it's like a Latinization of something. All they said was it's after the locality. But it's a typical kind of Chinese name where you have place name long, place name Ensis. So <laughs> nobody's going to use the species name anyway because we're just going to call it Anhui Long from now on. What they found of Anhui Long is the full left arm, and that's it. So you could also think of it as the front leg on the left side. I mean, it's at this point, it's so big that it's basically like it has four legs. But technically, it's still a humerus and ulna and a radius, just like in our arm. So they usually call it a forelimb or an arm, I guess. The way that they decided it was a mementosaurid is based on sort of the overall shape of the bones. They said that the silhouettes are very similar to mementosaurids. And then, of course, they go into a lot of detail for many pages about the various bumps and grooves and ratios on the bones and how that means that it's definitely a mementosaurid. But that kind of thing doesn't translate well to a podcast, so I'm not going to bore you with it. <laughs> But the thing that makes it unique is the specific sort of proportions of the bone as well. So it's close enough to know that it's a mementosaurid, but different enough to consider it its own genus. They found Anhui Long in the Tunxi Basin in Huangshan Anhui Province in China, which is about 200 miles southwest of Shanghai. So if you're familiar, it's kind of in an, a little bit of an unusual place for dinosaur discoveries in China. A lot of times they're in the northeast or a little farther west, but there have been other dinosaurs discovered here before. It was found in the same formation as another mementosaurid named Huangshanlong, which obviously was discovered in Huangshan, so you can guess where that name came from. And it also turns out to be Anhuilong's closest relative. I guess also not surprising if it's the same age, the same place, and yeah. the same family of dinosaur. And it also makes you kind of wonder if maybe they might be a little too similar and end up getting lumped together later. The authors consider them to be separate, obviously, but, you know, that's the beauty of these papers that might change later. Interestingly, the authors say that there's a growing diversity of mementosaurids in the area that show they were, quote, already a diverse sauropod clade in China by the Middle Jurassic. Or in other words, it was a really good time and place to be a mementosaurid. So they were just showing up all over the place in various forms and shapes. Taking over all the space with their necks. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> if you want to see it, I don't think it's on display for the public, but it is stored in the Anhui Geological Museum, which I had to look up because I had never heard of it before. And it's an amazing looking museum. So I've added it to the map. It's really, it's like, there are so many of these museums in China that I've never heard of because they're hard to search for mm -hmm. unless you know the exact name. And sometimes you even have to figure out the Chinese characters for it because it's not 
A lot of them are new, too. Yeah, but it's like an amazing looking building. Like if it was in the U.S., it would probably be in the top 10 museums in China. It's just like some museum that no one's heard of. It has two TripAdvisor reviews. Oh, (laughs) might be hard to get to. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty far from Shanghai and it's not the most densely populated area. But I really want to go after looking at this picture, especially if they put this guy on display. Yeah, for those of you who are new to our podcast, we have a map of a bunch of dinosaur natural history museums on our website at inodino.com, so you can check it out if you're looking for something to do, some place to visit. Yeah, it was actually one of the original reasons we made that website was because we wanted to keep track of all the dinosaur museums because there wasn't anywhere we could find that had it. So we made our own map, and then a few years later, we started this podcast. Fun piece of I Know Dino trivia. <laughs> <laughs> And speaking of sauropods, we've got another article about a sauropod. This one was written by Kerry Woodruff, who we interviewed, and he's kind of a sauropod guy. It was published in Scientific Reports. Kind of. He's like the sauropod guy. Well, there's one of your favorite people, Emmanuel Schopp, who brought back Brontosaurus. Well, there are several sauropod people, I guess. Yes. (laughs) And then there's also Thomas Carr and John Scanella were also on the article we've also interviewed. And based on those names, you might get a certain lumpiness feeling (laughs) about the the upcoming paper. (laughs) That's what you're going with? Yes. I'll just just let that stay where it is until we get to that point in the article. So this one was published in Scientific Reports, and they describe the smallest diplodocid skull yet discovered, as they call it, from Montana. It's from like southern Montana. They call it south central Montana which I think is kind of a funny description. Because Montana is so huge. Yes. And it makes me think of South Central LA, but then it's South Central Montana, which is the exact opposite in every way from South Central LA. <laughs> but it's about 24 centimeters or nine and a half inches long. Remember, this is just the skull, not any other part of the animal, which is about 40% as long as the longest known adult skull. So it's still, it's not tiny. It's not like a baby diplodocid. kid. But it's still a lot smaller. If you think about kind of human head size, if you've got a head that's less than half the size of an adult, that's a pretty small person because the the heads don't scale evenly. And that's actually one of the things that they kind of assume in their research is that the skull didn't proportionally scale because if you proportionally scaled it, it would have been much larger than they think that it actually was. Yeah. Oh, also, fun fact, this skull is nicknamed Andrew. Oh, that is a good nickname. Is that after... Yeah, it was nicknamed Andrew after Andrew Carnegie. That's cool. Makes sense. There used to be a species of Diplodocus named Diplodocus carnegiei. This isn't quite as good as having a species named after you, but still pretty cool. Yeah, and he helped the British Museum get their Diplodocus, well, now known as the Natural History Museum in London. Oh, that's right. Their copy of it, right? That's cool. Yep. Even though it's not there anymore. Oh, Dippy. Well, Dippy's on tour and doing really well. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully it'll find a good new permanent place. So the skull is pretty complete. It's just missing a piece just in front of the eye, basically. So kind of in the middle of the head, there's a sort of triangular piece cut out from the top. I don't know how that happened. It doesn't, maybe it's a preservation bias thing because there's a lot of different bones in the skull. But it's a diplodocus, according to their lumpiness. (laughs) And it's probably about two to six years old. So pretty young. Pretty young little diplodocus they got there. Mm -hmm. 
It was found, like I said, in southern Montana in a place called the Mother's Day Quarry, which is mostly diplodocids with at least 16 individuals that have been found there so far. So pretty good guess that this would be a diplodocid. When they scaled it up based on a skull, they estimate that it was about 5 meters or 16 feet long, although like I said, it could have been longer depending on sort of how its head grew relative to the rest of its body. And unfortunately, since they only have the skull, you know, it's that's one of the hardest bones to scale up a dinosaur with. What you really want is something like a femur, maybe even some vertebrae, things like that. But with the skull, it's tricky. Even though the skull is about 40% the size of an adult, when you scale it at that ratio, it's only about 20% the length of an adult. And in their depiction too, which I really like, their little silhouette, they show that it's about one meter or three feet tall at the hip. So when they have the little person silhouette standing next to it, it's taller than the sauropod <laughs> because they usually portray diplodocids with their heads low now, not like a brachiosaurus where it's sticking up. Right. But it does look like a good hugging height. I feel like you could kind of get around its neck and give it a good hug. Good size pet. Maybe. It's a little long. Although I guess it's a juvenile, so. Yeah, it'll get bigger on you. It's like getting a, a bunny at Easter, like a little chick, and then it turns into a full-size chicken and you don't know what to do with it. The bunny turned into a chick? No. <laughs> so separate things. Oh, okay. That's crazy. Where do I get one of these bunny chicks? You don't. <laughs> but back to Diplodocus. So the skull is a little bit taller, what makes it unique from an adult Diplodocus skull is that it's a little bit taller than an adult Diplodocus skull in sort of relative proportions. So if you're familiar with a Diplodocus skull, it's pretty long, relatively narrow. I mean, it's it's kind of like a horse head or something, like pretty flat. Whereas this guy has a, more of a bump by the eyes, so it's a little bit different shaped. And it also has a few more teeth than the adults and they're a different type of teeth so the adults have all peg-like teeth sometimes we call them pencil shaped teeth things like that but the juvenile has both those peg teeth in the front and then it has camarasaurid like as they describe them spatula teeth farther back in the mouth oh i see lumpers yeah because Someone might, someone else might dig up this skull and say, wow, this is very different. We've never seen this sort of combination of teeth before in a skull like this and name it something new like the Latin for strange combination of teeth or something. But they decided to consider it a platicus, which I think they have some good evidence for too. And they also say that since it has this combination of teeth, it means that it was eating a variety of different foods. And in this case, since we're considering it a juvenile Diplodocus, that means that it changed as it grew up. So when it was younger, it was eating a more varied diet. But then once it grew up, it just kind of stuck to one thing and gobbled it all up or maybe, <laughs> you know, it had better access to it or something. So, yeah. And that would definitely help with the sort of competition within the species, too. We've talked before about that and how there aren't as many different dinosaurs as there are, say, different birds today. And part of that can be attributed to the fact that young dinosaurs filled a different niche than the adult of the exact same species. So you can kind of fill more of the ecological niches with less species because they all fill them at different times in their life. So obviously, if we say that this is a juvenile Diplodocus, then the Diplodocus did not grow isometrically because it looks different, which means it grew allometrically. And 
that's basically the definition. We've talked a little bit about that before. And the authors also say, therefore, we need to be careful not to identify young dinosaurs as unique species. That was part of their abstract as a very lumpery thing to squeeze into an abstract, which I enjoy because obviously this is the same group. They come from the same school of thought that like Triceratops and Taurosaurus are the same dinosaur at different ontogenetic stages or different, you know, ages, basically. So, yeah, we're seeing the same kind of thing with Diplodocus. I would like to know which of those 16 dinosaurs in that quarry were which species, because if it turns out that they're all the same species of Diplodocus, then it makes a lot of sense that if you find another skull there to include it with the other 16 Mm -hmm. and say, oh, this is just a juvenile of that. But... It kind of seemed like those might be different Diplodocus kid because they referred to him as 16 Diplodocus kids from the area. And they also talk about how there are some of the specimens that they wanted to research were being used by other researchers and being basically renamed as new genera as they were trying to work on the paper. So it's kind of hard to say whether or not this guy would be a Diplodocus. They even said like, well, depending on how this kind of shakes out with other Diplodocids, which are being analyzed from the area or analyzed generally, this one might not be considered a Diplodocus in the future. Maybe we can ask him at SVP. But no matter what, it's a really cool little... Little Andrew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Up next, we've got another new dinosaur. So this one is... Another early pygostylian, or pygostylian, I don't know how to say it, bird slash dinosaur, similar to what we had last week. So it's one of those like transitional flying little monsters. And this one was published in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society and written by Min Wang and Jonghee Zhao. Just like last week, this one's also from the early Cretaceous. And this one's named... Yang Avis Confucii and Yang Avis is, quote, in honor of the late distinguished Chinese paleontologist Zhang Jian Yang, also known as Chung Chen Yang, in memory of the 121st anniversary of Yang's birth. He was widely considered the founder of Chinese vertebrate paleontology, end quote. And I thought that name sounded really familiar being named after a paleontologist, so I checked. And we did report a dromaeosaur called Jiangjianosaurus yangai last year, where both the first and both the genus and species level were named after him. So clearly he was very well respected in the paleontological community in China. Yeah. Also, to deviate from the usual practice of, as you mentioned, the Mementosaurus, the one that was named after the location. Yeah, Mementosaurus too is another one that's named after a place. But... Yeah, you do see that a little bit. It might not be fair to say that all Chinese dinosaurs do that, but it definitely happens more often than other places. And then finally, the Confuci in this case comes from Confucius because it's a Confucius ornithid. So makes sense. So being a Confucius ornithid, Yang Avis has a toothless upper and lower jaw. So it has pretty much a more regular bird beak, not like the one we talked about last week. But this one also has a fused scapulocoracoid, so a little bit less flexible in the whole wing region. But usually Confucius ornithids have one very small claw sort of in the middle of their wing. But this one unusually has a larger, what they call normal-sized claw (laughs) on their wing, which I think is funny because I don't think any amount of claw on a wing is normal. 
<laughs> Not for modern birds. <laughs> no, but I guess it's normal sized relative to other early dinosaur bird monsters. So <laughs> Animals. <laughs> I always think of them as monsters because they're like little dinosaurs that are flying and <laughs> terrifying. But luckily they did find a nearly complete skeleton. It's basically just missing the right foot from what I could tell on a couple other little pieces here and there, which is not too surprising because it's very small. Roughly, very roughly, really, trying to piece it together based on the scale bar and the preserved skeleton. It looks like maybe it had about a one and a half foot or 50 centimeter wingspan. So it was about a little bit smaller than a pigeon. Kind of common size, I would I would say, for this sort of dinosaur. And it also has longer arms proportionally than other Confucius ornithids. So that's a little something unique. That means that it's sort of various features, those claws, the lack of teeth, and the, and the fused scapula coracoid puts it in a weird sort of overlap with other early Cretaceous birds, like in Antiornithes. So sort of in between. <laughs> Again, evolution is very messy. They also don't really know why the bird would have regained that claw, which has apparently shrunken and then regrown in this one. They think that it regrew it after it going away, but they don't know what they might have used those claws for. They say that modern adult birds don't have them. I guess some young birds do. Didn't know that. It's kind of scary, <laughs> but <laughs> they don't know why, yeah, why birds had them in the first place. So they can't say like, oh, well, maybe this one was in this type of tree and therefore it needed the claws back again or something because we don't know why they even had them in the first place. So interesting. It's weird. Another weird bird dinosaur. Uh, dinosaurs in general are weird. <laughs> True. <laughs> That's why they're great to learn about. That transition of of dinosaurs to birds, though, is like an especially messy, confusing mess. Sure. Because we still really don't know what the what the closest ancestor is and what specific lineage sort of made its way to modern birds. Right. Do some good guesses, and they kind of lump big chunks of birds together, like the Pygostylians, and say like, well, they have that feature in common with modern birds, and try to parse it out a little bit, but it's so hard to figure out. It's a big change. Mm-hmm. And there were so many dinosaurs trying to do it trying to fly effectively, <laughs> some more successfully than others. And speaking of evolution, we got an email from Jake about some interesting fossils. And we had a really good back and forth about a few finds and science in general. So I wanted to share it here. Essentially, there are a few reports of human tracks intersecting with dinosaur prints, which as soon as I read that is kind of a red flag because it conflicts with thousands of existing fossils. And the most parsimonious answer to, hey, there's a dinosaur print that's intersecting with a, f a human print is that it's probably fake. So going a little bit deeper into it, since neither of us have access to these fossils to sort of look at them, the obvious question is, what does the paleontology community think of them? But once I looked into it, I couldn't find any published evidence or any published articles really about these at all. You could find information in sort of magazines and newspapers and things like that, but not in any sort of peer-reviewed journal article where they really dug into it, where peers in the paleontological community could examine the fossil and say what they thought of it, which is another issue. But really, on a higher level, science is really done by publishing hypotheses so that other people can test them. So it's all about putting forward a falsifiable premise 
and then having people look at your premise and your data and your methods and try to replicate it. And if they can, good. You know, you've got some more support for your theory. But if people can't, then, you know, we probably move on to the next hypothesis and try to figure things out better. And that's how we eventually got to the theory of evolution and lots and lots of other theories. But just like we don't take paleontologists' word for it that they have some amazing unpublished find that proves their hypothesis, because we have heard that lots of times, like, oh no, I've got this bone squirreled away and it shows that this dinosaur actually is its own species or isn't its own species or whatever. We always say like, well, we'd like to see that or we'll... Right. Like just read the peer-reviewed journal. Yes. And see what the what the scientific community thinks of it. We're definitely not going to take people's word for it when they say something in just like a magazine and say like, oh, I found this thing and science doesn't want you to know about it or whatever, because it needs to be thoroughly vetted by the community in order to be taken seriously. And then the final thing that I want to bring up is that just parsimony in general. So there's a lot of names for this. Parsimony really just means the simplest explanation for all the gathered data is probably the right one. So it can also be considered Occam's razor. There's a famous quote by Carl Sagan that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. They're all sort of in the same logical realm. And really, all the existing evidence supports evolution with humans arriving millions of years after dinosaurs went extinct. And we've never found any human bones, horse bones, dog bones, or any other sort of large mammals from the Mesozoic. So the obvious best explanation is that there weren't any large mammals in the Mesozoic. That doesn't mean that there definitely weren't. Maybe we could find some larger mammal from the Mesozoic, but it seems very unlikely that it would be anything in sort of a hominid body plan because that's just not what any of the mammals we saw from in the Mesozoic had that sort of appearance to them. And the only thing that we've found so far are human footprints, at least that some people claim to have found are human footprints. And coincidentally, that would be the easiest thing to fake because we have no way currently of recreating a fossil in a lab. The only way we know to make fossils takes a really long time in Earth with minerals slowly replacing bone. So if we found a good, you know, large mammal bone from the Mesozoic, it would be really good evidence, but we've never found that. All we've ever found are footprints, which are, again, pretty easy to fake. So that seems like the most parsimonious explanation based on all the science at the moment. Who knows, maybe there could be a larger mammal found at some point, but it's very unlikely it would be a hominid. And before we move on to the next item, I just want to quickly thank Jake for taking the time to ask these questions. The tone of the email was incredibly professional, and he asked all the right questions, really thinking about evidence and how we could learn what the right answer is, how we could decipher if these footprints were real, what other data we might look for. And that's really the right way to approach a claim like this. So definitely keep up the good scientific thinking, Jake. Our next news item isn't strictly dinosaur related, but it was really cool, so I wanted to share. PhD candidate Aja Carter at the University of Pennsylvania is looking to tetrapods and how they move to build better rescue robots. And it's part of this emerging field called bio-inspired robotics. The idea is to get inspiration from nature and mimic the movement so that robots can better move over rough terrain like a rocky surface or a forest floor. So they can get to us when they take over the world? Is that the idea? They're rescue robots. They're not supposed to. Anyway. That's how they start. Oh, no. (laughs) That's a whole different conversation. Anyway, 
<laughs> Carter has been analyzing how tetrapods moved, such as Archeria, which was an early tetrapod that was eel-like and had basic limbs. So she takes CT scans and then 3D prints vertebrae and then inserts silicone quote-unquote cartilage between the vertebrae and then adds these small programmable motors on each side of the vertebral column. And it looks really cool in the picture. Yeah. And moves really weird, but (laughs) anyway. (laughs) Kind of looks like an artificial spine or something. Yeah, but very large, very wide. And she's developing new methods on how to figure out these animal movements. But it's based on techniques from the 1800s, you know, casting and molding, which people still do today. It sounds like she'll be researching other animals in the future. Maybe she'll get to dinosaurs. Could be. Dinosaurs are kind of tricky because a lot of them were bipedal. Yeah. And those are not as useful for robots. Because even the living, you know, dinosaurs fell over sometimes. So (laughs) That's true. Poor Allosaurus. Yeah. Or T-Rex. We've seen a few of those. Yeah. But anyway, speaking of robots and dinosaurs... This one's a little more dinosaur-y. Horizon, the EU Research and Innovation magazine, published an article on how models of dinosaur movement could help us build better robots and architecture. So John Hutchinson from the Royal Veterinary College in the UK, who we interviewed back in episode 185, Procomps of Nathis, if you want to hear what he has to say more, he and his team are working on the Don Dinos Project, where they're studying the movements of the earliest, smallest dinosaurs. They're exploring if early dinosaurs had superior locomotive performance over other late Triassic archosaurs, and if that's the reason why they survived into the Triassic when everything else pretty much went extinct. Hmm. So these dinosaurs could walk on two legs, at least at times, and Hutchinson and his team, they're developing computer simulations to estimate how 11 species of archosaurs may have moved, and they'll focus on walking, running, turning, jumping, and standing. To test the accuracy of their simulations, they're going to be studying the same movements of modern crocodiles and birds and then compare the results. And they've already modeled the movement of the sauropodomorph, Musarus, and determined that it was bipedal. At first, it was thought to be quadrupedal because its arms were so large. So these simulations could be really useful to help robots move, similar to the work that Carter's doing, and also for helping to create more realistic animations for film and TV, And to learn more about how mass is distributed on the body, especially among larger animals, to help support their weight. So the team plans to scan different limb bones and then learn about their inner structure and use 3D modeling to figure out the weight distribution and how thickness or orientation might relate to their strength. And then this in turn will help create materials that can be lighter but more resistant and help with building techniques. So it's crazy how much dinosaurs can cover. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure how much it'll help with building techniques, but definitely it will be interesting to relate it to other animals and sort of how they hold up all that weight, because that's definitely something dinosaurs are good at. Yep. And robotics. Who knew? Past meets future. (laughs) Maybe building techniques if they're like the previous news item where we're trying to build dinosaur-like robots. (laughs) We'll find out. (laughs) In China, more Cretaceous-era dinosaur eggs have been found at a construction site, this time in the eastern province Zhejiang. A crew was digging in the city Iwu and found the eggs, and they sent the eggs to the Zhejiang Museum of Natural History. The geologist Du Tianming said that they're from the Cretaceous about 80 million years ago, and so far they found 15 eggs. 
more than 100 dinosaur eggs have been found in Iwu. The first ones were found back in 1993, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of dinosaur footprints that have also been found in the area and dinosaur fossils. There's six dinosaur species that have been found recently in the Zhejiang province alone. Yeah, I think we've talked about all of them. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But just to give you a recap. Yep. The abundance of dinosaurs in China. There are a lot of them. In the U.S., starting in January... In Oklahoma, near the University of Oklahoma Sam Noble Museum, schools can request a dinosaur dig site, and they can dig for fossils and learn about the history of the area. And they've got dinosaur tracks and other fossils, and people from the museum teach students how some of those fossils were found. Nice. Fun field trip. That would be good. In Dinosaur Media Saurian, which you might remember, it's that awesome-looking game with the really realistic dinosaurs. Where you play as dinosaurs. Yeah. They recently updated their Triceratops and T-Rex in the game. And the Triceratops has four life stages. There's a baby through adult. The males, they've made more colorful and overall very accurate looking Triceratops, which is not surprising. Everything they make is very accurate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The T-Rex was recently redesigned and they had this very lengthy blog post where they explained everything. It took them about a year to complete and they started... From the ground up, they started by designing the skeleton, and then they reconstructed each muscle. And then they added the skin, and they decided to not have feathers. This is based on a 2017 study published by Phil Bell and others that presented evidence against the idea that all tyrannosauroids were feathered and had some T-Rex skin impressions in the study that showed scales from several parts of the body. So they said they were going to make that call to not give it feathers. Yeah, which is interesting because a few years ago they made a really realistic T-Rex with feathers Yep. and everyone was lauding how accurate it was and how, you know, fluffy T-Rex could still be scary and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And now they've done an about face and they're doing the scaly T-Rex. Yep. That's kind of how science is. Yeah. Changes sometimes in unfortunate and frustrating ways. Well, I can (laughs) imagine that's hard when you're doing the art side, especially such detail. Yeah, we, when we, one of the times when we interviewed them, we asked them about that, how long they would keep updating these things, because we know our depictions of what dinosaurs look like is going to change in the future. And they said, at some point, we're going to have to just stop mm-hmm. and, you know, be comfortable with the fact that this was accurate at the time and leave it there. But I guess they're not at that point yet. They're still willing to It'd be a hard things. decision to make. I can't imagine drawing the line anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> they need things to stabilize just long enough for them to finish the game. Yeah. And then maybe it'll stick. Yeah. They also have Scott Hartman helping with the project. Actually, they've got a bunch of people, of experts, helping them and with their art. And they have other reasons that they decided to go with the no feathers and with the scales, which they go into detail in the post. Similar to some of the reasons we talked about with Thomas Carr a couple weeks ago. Yeah. But like always, their work is very well done (laughs) and really fun to look at. Yeah, when I saw that T-Rex, the first thing I did was compare it in depth to the T-Rex from Jurassic Park just to look at all the differences. And you can start to see a lot when you look at them closely. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a fun thing to do. I know they did a lot of work with its arms because the first uh, few depictions, they were getting some critiques that it was too muscly of arms. (laughs) It did have strong arms, but, you know, maybe they... In proportion, though. Yeah, they might not have looked, you know... Like a buff human mm-hmm. arm. <laughs> Speaking of T-Rex, we've got one fun T-Rex costume story. So 
There's a mom who dressed her entire family, including her four kids who were between the ages of four and ten, in inflatable T-Rex costumes so that they could take a photo announcing that she's expecting her fifth child. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she, her name's Nicole, and her husband, Daniel Berkeley, they are holding a wooden egg with... It's kind of spotted with green spots between them. And then there's a picture of a sonogram tape to it. Hmm. And there's a sign that says hatching in April. <laughs> and then next they plan to throw a dinosaur-centric gender reveal party for the babies. Nice. Really creative, yeah. I wonder if they're paleontologists. The article didn't say. Maybe just dinosaur enthusiasts. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of us. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Philip Miller. So we're joined this week by Philip Miller, and he's the Associate Creative Director at Creature Technology, and he has worked on many of their projects, including Walking with Dinosaurs, the Arena Spectacular. He has three decades of experience as a puppeteer and designer working on all sorts of projects, too many to list. And he's also the former editor of the Australian Puppeteer Magazine. So first, I mean, I have to ask, how did you get into puppeteering? I've been doing puppetry for as long as I can remember. I mean, since I was a, a tiny person making little glove puppets as like a, you know, before I was even 10, that my mum was helping me make glove puppets. I would borrow library books on on, on making puppets. And so I, I just was doing it through primary school and then I got to, got to high school. I was doing shows for the primary school kids and then I got to university. I was doing 
puppetry as part of my teaching uh, degree. And then when I left uh, university, I went straight into a, a job at a local children's puppet company called Polyglot Puppet Theatre, which is still running uh, in Melbourne today. And um, it's been a career since I left uni, so I've been very fortunate just to go from one puppetry gig to another. And that's you know, uh, sort of culminated with, with the current job. That is awesome. Mm-hmm. And Sabrina and I both love puppets, oh, by yeah. the way. <laughs> well, how, how can you not? <laughs> They're just yeah. wonderful. <laughs> and then how did you get into dinosaurs or when did the puppeteering meet dinosaurs? They've kind of been running in sync the entire time. I remember way back when I was tiny, my, my dad would show us how to make, he was big on making, he was a teacher, so we'd be making stuff and he would make um, dinosaurs out of um, screwed up newspaper and wire and plaster. And he'd make <laughs> a little sort of, you know, brontosaurus or whatever in, in plaster. And, and like that was from when I was tiny. And so making was always a thing and dinosaurs were always a thing. My brother and I were obsessed. <laughs> and that obsession has just magically merged into my job. And so people look at me and go, how on earth did you score a dream gig? Because I get to make dinosaur puppets. You are the perfect person for the job if you've been working on it for your whole life, I suppose, is the way you do that's it. What I tell, that's what I tell people, yes. It has to be me. You can't get anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you were basically a co-founder of Creature Technology. Is that right? Well, not exactly. I was one of the people there at the start. That Sonny Tilders is our creative director, and he was the one who was uh, commissioned uh, initially by the original producers to devise a way to make the full-size, realistic, naturalistic dinosaurs based on the BBC show. So uh, I'd spoken to the producers about it previously, but I'd had a, I'd worked with them on a previous show, and, and we'd had um, a difference of opinion about some money. <laughs> <laughs> but when, when Sonny came along and said, look, there's this great gig uh, involving making life-size animatronic dinosaurs, I went, yeah, how, how could I knock that back? I mean, it's just be fantastic. And so I was one of a number of people that Sonny had gathered together from, like we'd worked together on various films and stage shows over the years. And so he had a whole collection of people that he'd worked with um, up in Sydney on Farscape, he'd worked with people on Star Wars, he'd worked with you know, various film and TV people, then there was theatre people, engineering, a whole range of different disciplines, and he basically sort of cherry-picked the people he'd worked with and wanted to work with further. And we went from an empty workshop at the start of 2006 to the, the show ready to go in New Year's Day 2007. So it was wow. an incredib- incredibly frantic <laughs> build process over yeah. the course of that year. I can't imagine. So the the company was created specifically to start the Walking with Dinosaurs Arena Spectacular first. Absolutely, and because because most of us were were film um, people, we sort of you know were used to working stupid hours on a really intense project, <laughs> and then you'd you'd work with all these cool people, then you'd wave them goodbye, and and you'd go to the next gig because you know films like that you just do gig to gig and off you go. Mm-hmm. But at the end of it. Um, Jerry Ryan, who's the man who put the money up to do this thing, had said, you guys should stick together and make another set of dinosaurs, hmm. which was a, it reminded me of um, when um, Jim Henson kept the Creature Workshop together after Dark Crystal, that you know, he, had, he gathered together all these people and then didn't want to see them dissipate mm-hmm. off into the other projects. So Jerry gave us the means to keep going and enabled us to kind of find our feet, make a second set of dinosaurs, kind of hone our technology and it's just kept going since then that is awesome yeah 
Yeah, there are a lot of similarities between creature technology and the creature workshop for sure. Yeah, well, just that the, it's driven. One of the key similarities for me is that we're driven by performance, that a lot of contemporary special effects is CGI. It's all screen-based. And a lot of contemporary theme park attractions are CGI screen-based attractions mm. where you, you might have an amazing experience, but you're seeing an amazing thing on a screen. And one of the things that – the main thing that drives us is that an experience that you have with an actual creature is always palpably different to what you'll see on a screen. That that, that when you stand in front of our T-Rex and it roars at your face, <laughs> you know you you have been roared at by a T-Rex. And uh, it's it has a different kind of visceral impact. And, and we strive to maintain that so that our point of difference with other um, effects companies is that we – make like we work digitally but then we actually make the thing and bring it into the real world where a lot of people stay on a screen we get off the screens and into your face yeah right. practical effects are always awesome <laughs> done done well there's nothing that, that beats it the, 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 the reality of the response you get is is such a, a, a profound difference like you, you can get a, a surprise or a shock off a mm -hmm. screen but you don't ever feel it's actually going to bite you whereas <laughs> with our creatures there is the possibility it may in fact eat you <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was watching your reel and the movements are so fluid and so realistic <laughs> it's amazing that was that was what that was the driving force behind sunny's specifications for this that, that he'd worked with a, an engineer called trevor ty who he invented something we call Trevdrolics. It was Trevor's version of hydraulics mm -hmm. where he worked out that industrial stuff is is stiff and precise, that, that, that industrial robotics needs to be uh, efficient and and precise every time. But he said, but if you take the model of a dancer rather than an industrial robot, dancers have a, a different approach. That they need expressiveness rather than necessarily exact precision. And so if you take that as a mode, and you try and make a robot which thinks like a dancer or moves like a dancer rather than moving like a forklift, mm -hmm. then you have a different approach to movement. So everything we do is is driven by that need to create a naturalistic movement. It doesn't have to be millimetre precise every time necessarily. It needs to be communicating something through its movement each time. Yeah. I, I remember seeing in the video, one of the videos, sort of a behind the scenes, there's a sort of remote control for the puppeteer where it sort of has it almost like the vertebra of or the vertebrae of the neck of a sauropod yep. or something and they sort of manipulate yep. it in one motion was that something you guys invented not invented it's a it's a refinement of something which is used across the industry uh animatronics for some years like some decades actually and different people have different names for it because um <laughs> i think it was um i think it was rick lazarini's company may have um put a trademark on the term Waldo. I think Waldo was derived from a Robert Heinlein short story. I'm not quite sure what the derivation of it was, but but that was the name for a controller which uh, operates like a miniature version of something else. And so we call that as a voodoo because that notion of, of remote control of a, of a sort of doppelganger figure. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's kind of a generalised shape of a body with a head end and a tail end. And it means that one puppeteer can use 
I'm not sort of doing the movements now, but you can use your body to 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 feed the, the, the dynamic performance into the character, so that the, each joint corresponds to a, a point of, of movement within the character, and you then know as you push the neck around, you're going to get exactly the response you want in the creature. It's it's very satisfying to puppeteer a large character with one of these because it's very quick and responsive and really intuitive. Yeah, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. <laughs> It's, it's one of the when, when we had it set up in the workshop, which we haven't done for a while because, of course, they're out on tour. But it's wonderful when your visitors come in. Uh, actually, we had this when um, Adam Savage came in as part. Uh, he was doing a, a, uh, some work with uh, for Weta, and he came over to Australia for a talk here. Um, and so we got him into the workshop. It's like, yeah, would you like to play with our dinosaur? I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> of course, he would like to. And so we had this famous grin you could knock off with a stick, which is exactly what happens to everyone who operates it. But you can't believe what you're doing. You're actually making a dinosaur move around. It's so satisfying. That is amazing. Do the puppeteers ever have to like improvise? Because I was imagining all the different theaters that they, you guys go around to, there has to be a big difference in floor plans sometimes and things like that. So do they have to like come up with new routes for walking around and things like that every time? No, we are very tightly choreographed, and because we control we control the size of the space. Like most of the time in the states, we're going into uh, ice hockey rinks and places like that, like auditoriums or stadiums, where the floor size is very specific, and we map it out exactly. Like we don't have a variance in okay. the floor. We we actually we altered. Uh, the show for the new tour so that we operate in slightly smaller venues and that meant re-choreographing the whole thing because oh. the the moves are very tightly planned because you can't afford not to. They're very expensive machines yeah. and running into things is a costly mistake. So <laughs> everyone knows where they need to be. But at the same time, any, with, any, with any live performance, you have to accommodate slight variations. So the puppeteers are speaking to the drivers who are speaking to stage management. So they're all in communication. So if some something happens or something changes, then that's that's spoken between the various operators so that they're all in sync and you and you there should be no surprises when something happens or you know or if you have to make an adjustment, you can make the adjustment and everyone knows that you're doing that. Um, because you know the, the safety side of it's pretty critical. Gotcha. So do the drivers, is it most of the time kind of an autopilot, but then they can override it briefly? Is that the sort of way it works? No, 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 not with, with, now with the theme parks, everything is programmed. That's a different story. Uh, But the original live stuff, this was with, um, with Walkman Dinosaurs and also our original um, How to Train Your Dragon tour, which was back in 2009, I think. It's live. It's all live. The drivers control the speed and direction of the character for the entire performance, and mm. the puppeteers control the the movement of the character for the entire performance. Uh, when we did the, by the time we got to the Sochi uh, Olympics, the the characters for that, we were then able to pre-program certain sets of movements, like a, like a macro sort of thing, where mm-hmm. the, like the for, for the bear to blow out the flame, for example, that was programmed as a series of very precise movements mm-hmm. because they were very precise about what it should do. So we could record that and the puppeteer could go to that as part of their performance, but they could then live blend other movements in. But the original the original dinosaurs and the original dragons were all done live and the drivers just have to know their choreography and hit their marks every time. So then the analogy of dancers is pretty perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's it. The, the, the little um, catchphrase that, that I've sort of worked up with the chief engineer here, um, Richard McKenna, is we worked out the specification is the performance or the performance is the specification because when you're doing engineering, you need to know, okay, what does it need to do? Mm-hmm. And so we always start, like 
at the coalface, at where it meets the audience. What do we want the audience to experience? That determines all our choices down the track. Whereas sometimes people will make something without knowing how it's going to be used, but that's not a very satisfying way to do it. You need, for us, you work out what the performance is going to be, what you want the audience to experience, and everything is designed in support of that. So the, the, it's performance-driven. Wow, that's awesome. We saw uh, the Walking with Dinosaurs Arena Spectacular a few years ago, and I mean, we were really impressed then, but I think knowing more about how it works <laughs> makes me more impressed. <laughs> Oh, I'm very glad. Thank you. It's, it's, it's something we're very proud of. And, and the fact that it keeps going is, I think, testament to the, the thing about seeing real creatures, that there is something – and I still get a buzz out of it when I go and see – I've seen the show so many times. But when I go and see it, you're sitting amongst a big audience, particularly if you've got small kids around you, and the absolute buzz that comes off – people just gasping when a T-Rex comes over and roars at them or when the, or when the Brachiosaurus leans in and they feel that it's looked at them. It's just delightful every time. I really love it. Yeah, I think we liked the the Brachiosaurus, like the adult, enormous. That, is that the biggest one that you guys made? Yes, well, that, in our old workshop, there wasn't actually enough room to get the mother Brachiosaurus up and running inside the workshop. We only had a seven, I think it was a nine-metre ceiling at the centre, so you couldn't actually walk around, so we had to get it out of the car park. When we had to do the last test, we had to get it into the car park. And where our previous workshop was, it was along a train line. And so we got the, the, the mother, mother Brachy out into the car park. We were just marching up and down the, the car park, testing the walk cycle. And you'd see people go past the train because it was an elevated train, train line, so it was like eye level with the, with the Brachy. <laughs> and so you'd, just, you'd see people look up from their newspaper and just do this fabulous double take and the train to be gone. And you just imagine them going, I didn't, did I just see it? No. Yeah, there was that, I, just, I just hope they got to work really confused. That is awesome. <laughs> How did you guys decide which dinosaurs to make, like to make that huge Brachiosaurus and the other ones? Was it thinking of it from that audience perspective mostly? No, in the this is one of the things when the client often determines what we do, and with the case of the BBC Walking with Dinosaurs thing, we had a we were licensing that property from the BBC, so mm. they had specific characters that had been created for the show on you know, the TV show, mm-hmm. and so we were basically mimicking what they had done. So oftentimes when we you know that a client comes with a project, they the you know, the intellectual property of the thing is already fixed, and so that means you are then working to the IP of that project. So when we did the Jurassic World exhibition, for example, uh, that was the, you know, the IP is fixed. And as an example of where you have to sort of swallow your dinosaur credentials and just <laughs> bite, bite your tongue, that when we last did the tour of, actually a few tours ago of dinosaurs, I finally managed to convince uh, our producers that, that our show was no longer legitimately up with the science and it was about time we, we started trying to put some you know feathers on our you know, utoraptors and, and maybe a bit of fuzz on our dino fuzz on our baby t-rex and maybe even some dino fuzz on the on the t-rex itself based on the on the utyrannus uh, discovery so mm-hmm. I, I, wrote, I wrote a whole paper with all this supporting material saying well, you know this is what needs to happen for us to up, update the show and, and got the go-ahead so um, that's why in the new show there's um, the, the baby T-Rex has a kind of um, almost like a fledgling cockatoo kind of vibe to it, like the little sort of, you know, the feathers on that are kind of determined by that. And I had conversations with other paleontologists, like at one stage, it was Lindsay Zano was one of the um, consultants on the show, and so I could talk with her about the evolution of feathers and whether some of the choices we made were legit, and it was a bit, 
it's tricky because you sort of have to think about a theatrical reality versus paleontological reality, right. and you know, you find the details when you know the, the theatre wins. Um, <laughs> but it's still, it's, 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 I felt it was very satisfying to be able to make an adjustment based on on the science. But then, of course, when you get to Jurassic World, and they have uh, a brand identity and an IP, and very specifically decided that they weren't going to go with feathering on their on their velociraptors. I'm just doing air quotes on their velociraptors. Um, <laughs> so um, that's one of those situations where they have a look, they have a brand. There's a there's a, 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 a colour scheme, and that's that's not negotiable. That's what it needs to look like. So I um, went fine. We're going to paint them those colours, we're going to do the skins, and, and that's because that, that was for the show. That was the job. So our Jurassic World exhibition reflects the IP of the Jurassic World ecosystem. It would be weird if you went into a Jurassic World exhibition and all of a sudden everything was scientifically accurate and you're like, wait, what? I thought this was Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, wouldn't it be cool, though? Wouldn't it, it would be. be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, that's a, it was a sort of running joke in the workshop. We had, we had a... Um, Often we have um, expeditions off to the local IMAX to see when the when the new films came out. And when after seeing Jurassic World, people was like, "Don't sit next to Philip; he'll just complain." Because <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting there grumbling about, oh, "I'm going to see this bird," you know. <laughs> and so yes, I, I've, I've, I try not to get too grumpy, but oh, yeah, they're great fun. But it would be—I just think that the science itself is fun. Like just the reality of it's even more fun. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so I'm still hoping to convince someone that we need a giant therizinosaur, like some yeah, some weird, big weird ones, like you know, some big feathered recent ones, because we're still, in, I think we're still in a period where people put the dinosaurs from the, from that they knew from the '60s or something like that, as if they're the only palette available, yeah. and and yet there's this massive. Uh, cast of characters that have yet to be properly featured. I mean, there's been a few that have tried it, you know, the Dinosaur Revolution show and a few other ones where they've actually done some interesting new creatures. But I think for an arena show, it'd be great to get a cast of new ones out. Yeah. A Therizinosaurus would be amazing. Oh, yeah. That's wouldn't so it? weird. Wouldn't it? Yes. <laughs> and and this part of it is like, okay, trying to design the locomotion for it. Like, what's the. Like we, 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 our Plateosaurus, for example, we, we designed that as a quadruped and then did that because that's the way it was presented in the show. And then you go and read the latter's papers, you say, no, they'll obligate bipeds. You go, oh, well, that's a shame because that's not what our, <laughs> our engineering does. But uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't change that. But that's the kind of thing where the science just gets ahead of, of what you've actually made sometimes. Yeah, and things with dinosaur science change so rapidly that, I mean, you guys made those puppets really fast, but I could imagine a scenario where you're making the puppet and as you're making it, a new paper comes out and you're like, well, do I scrap the puppet or do I? <laughs> do I <laughs> no, do generally, if, if a new paper comes out, we just put it away and pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until the next round. Because I'm like, exactly, because something like, you know, Tyrannosaurus lips. I mean, that's a, that's one I've been doing a lot of reading on what the, what the latest thinking is on how the mouth of a Tyrannosaurus should look. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we have a particular look which is derived from mostly from Jurassic Park, that that's, you know, the Jurassic World world uses that look and now there's you know various theories about how the, what the mechanics of the lips were on a t-rex so i don't know whether we'll advance or change what we've got but for now we're driven by the brand identity which is you know the the classic t-rex from jurassic park so yeah it, it'll, it'll change and things like that even you know you've got people like thomas carr saying 
you know, they didn't have lips. Their teeth stuck out like an alligator, which is basically the way most people depict them. And then other people are saying that they needed lips. So you don't, the science isn't even settled on which way to do it. (laughs) Oh, exactly. Exactly. And and that's a couple of our, like our general manager and our our production managers here are both from the, they were originally with the Melbourne Museum for many, many years. And so they have a lot of experience work with the paleontology department. And and the joke is that getting two paleontologists together, it's like getting two economists together. You (laughs) won't get them to agree on anything. And so, yeah, we, we did some work for the, um, for the museum, we made us some, some Quantasauruses for them. And we ended up doing that because it was another dinosaur they were hoping that we'd make. But the, but, but even in-house, the, the in-house paleontologists at the Melbourne Museum couldn't agree on a correct a correct life reproduction for the, for the other character, so we went with one they could agree on. Um, it's always fun. I just lo- love the back and forth of that, of, of arguing the toss about what might be uh, plausible or realistic. Yeah, yeah. it is great. <laughs> well, speaking of the the Contosaurus, so those dinosaur movements—they're programmed to react to people. How does that work? With those, it was a—I puppeteered a performance for, which was linked up with some video, which is in the background. So I had a little story, and I puppeteered that. But then we have some movement sensors in the room, and they can detect whether someone is approaching from the left or the right and whether they're low down like a child or higher up like an adult. <laughs> so so basically the, the, the character has like a um, an idling motion, which is like a breathe, like just a quiet breathing and um, grazing motion. And then if the system detects movement from a direction, I can do – it can go into – I think it was actually that was six or I do six different performances. So its first look would be a sharp look, say low and left, if there was a child approaching low from that side, or high and right. You know, depending on because there are only two places that I get people to come from. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, if that that was the only piece of stuff that was affected by a motion sensor. But from a performance perspective, if you approach something and it turns immediately to look in your direction, <laughs> you immediately attribute intelligence and awareness to that thing. Even though once you watch it for a while, you become aware it's obviously just going through a sequence of motions. But if its initial motion is in response to a stimulus, then you buy into the fact that it's real. And that's very important for us, that, that you get the audience to buy into it, and then they're, they're sold, you know, that they're, they're, they're engaged. And so that was, that was really, really important for us for that exhibition. That is awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. I love those animatronics when they're in museums and they're done well. It's great. Yes, and the thing is, it's it's, it's often difficult because the, the good animatronics actually costs a fierce amount of money, and a lot of museums aren't funded sufficiently to do that. So, part of the work we did for Melbourne Museum was kind of R and D for us, mm-hmm. um, but it was also important for us to have a permanent exhibition in our town. Like most of the work we do is overseas, yeah. and it's good to have something which is local. Cool. So, when you did the Jurassic World exhibition, was it similar kind of things? Is it all pre-programmed? With the, with that, yes, that was definitely all pre-programmed. But I, we puppeteered the whole thing. There's, we have different technologies. Like our older technology is designed for the live work, and our newer stuff is um, very much pre-programmed. We work mostly in Maya, do all the animation in Maya, and then we can make a, a version of the character in Maya which reflects the actual engineering of the real character, so we know that they'll match. So, the, so the, the theme park stuff, like you know Kong down in Orlando. Uh, and the Jurassic World exhibition that was been, has been touring, they were, they're both pre-programmed, but they're programmed in different ways. So I puppeteered the stuff for the Jurassic World exhibition, and when we shifted to a different venue, like we started in Melbourne, then it went to Philadelphia. The Philadelphia space was different, 
So we had a different orientation of a couple of characters. Um, ben, our animator, and I would travel over there and we re-puppeteered, reanimated the sequences to match the, the venue. But now we've got to a stage where they've, they've worked out that's a very expensive way to do it <laughs> and they just they, they try and maintain a consistent relationship. It was very good for me because I got to travel to different places. To, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's one of those things like, I, I enjoy having a ridiculous job description, but when you can say to people, look, I've just, I've just got to go to Paris to reanimate the T-Rex, <laughs> that was uh, – <laughs> It's pretty cool. That was that was very. I was so pleased myself. I was so smug about that for months. <laughs> <laughs> do you have to? Oh no, you said it's gotten to a point now where you don't really have to reanimate. But do yeah, you? Do you go like, anyway just to see? Just like oh, uh, I need to check. <laughs> I would love to, like, because um, the big thing for us at the moment is we have our King Kong show opening on Broadway, mm-hmm. and that's that's massive for us, and. Um, so I'm mad keen to see that, but of course, uh, a trip to New York is not trivial from over here. Yeah. So um, I might be saving up for that one because that um, the people who actually are required to run the thing are already there, and uh, I was involved with a lot of the early concept design and and the development of that. Uh, but I'm not I'm not one of the key staff on that particular show, so. It doesn't look like I'm, if I beg a lot, maybe I might score a visit there. But, but that's the kind of thing it's, it's, it's got to do with, you know, who are the technical people required to actually run the thing right. and, and they're the ones who get to go. <laughs> yeah, they should fly everybody out there for the, the grand opening, yeah. right? That's exactly what we said. That's exactly <laughs> what we said. <laughs> so, yes, we, 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 we live in hope. <laughs> <laughs> maybe once it wins some awards. Well, we hope so because it would, it would suit us if it ran for years and it was a huge success. I mean, I've worked on something else on uh, – we did a show for um, Radio City Musical with the Rockettes. We, we made a giant Statue of Liberty a few years ago and that was great fun. So I got to, to visit New York a few times to, to install and um, puppeteer do you know, do sort of work on that? Uh, that was great fun, but that sadly that show's folded now, so we won't see our Lady Liberty back again. I was trying to you know work out a way to do Lady Liberty and Kong simultaneously. <laughs> That's true. You know, it's the right city. You could have it off to the side, dancing around. I guess I don't know what your statue did if it is on theme with King Kong, but. <laughs> <laughs> You know, actually, when we had him in the workshop, there was this bizarre thing where we had Lady Liberty in the workshop at the same time as we had the um, the the bear for the for the Russian Olympics. So we had you know the, the Russian bear and Lady Liberty. I thought if we could have a standoff of some kind, this could be quite amusing. We could have an international incident, but we couldn't quite couldn't quite orchestrate that. <laughs> That's great. I said the neat thing where you, you know we say so we've got a T Rex out the back and we really have it's always it's it's a it's a neat collection of toys to have. Oh yeah, yeah. I saw pictures of your your office. I guess what well, looks like a big warehouse, right? And just walk around. It's there. a massive warehouse. Yeah, you know, we, we moved in about eighteen months ago. This bigger space, and we're starting to hit the walls already because I've got so many creatures in testing at the moment. Uh, which is just fabulous. We've just you know there's a, a, quite a few new staff we've had just to accommodate the. The increased workflow. Awesome. Yeah. Must be fun. Basically just it look up and you see fabulous. something. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, it's it's wonderful. We have um, like beer o'clock on a Friday. If you can manage to get do it so we had a show until we had this a couple of weeks ago where we finally got this character which has been in development for years and it, it, it finally got it to the commissioning stage where it can run through its performance cycle. And so you get the entire staff out of a Friday afternoon to see the, the character move and it's just 
it's wonderful after you've been working on something for so long, you know, that's what the audience is going to be faced with. It's mm-hmm. so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. Mm. So you also have a new generation of dinosaurs for the Arena Spectacular coming up. Can you tell us anything about those? They're the tweaked ones we had from the last show, that they're, they're still the they're a sort of updated version of the original technology. So there's our live ones, so they're live puppeteers. The, the stuff we're doing in the workshop now is, is a different order of magnitude because it's theme park based. It has a different duty cycle. Like theme park duty cycles are incredibly punishing. Mm. Uh, but, the one, but the ones for the stage show just don't have the same duty cycle, so they can be much more lightweight and they use a different skin technology. We use silicon on theme parks. We use fabric on the on the arena shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just they're designed to be lighter, more easily travelled, faster to, to, to work. You know, there's the a whole lot of things about them which, which make them better to tour. Mm-hmm. The, the theme park stuff is is massive and, and structural and needs to run 20 years. <laughs> That's cool. Are you adding any new dinosaurs? Sadly, no, because each new dinosaur is a massive investment and the whole show is, is a massive uh, investment for the producer to take on. So um, it's a tour of the thing. So I would, I would love to be introducing some new stuff, but um, the the – the cycle of going from initial design through you know, digital testing and, and now we test things in VR as well, like we'll do previews and we'll check the thing out in with a you know, virtual reality headset to see if everything can work properly before we commit to building it. So mm. our process has become quite long-winded in order to kind of get the bugs out before it gets onto the floor. And that that now is a process that can take literally sometimes years to to to, to get the bugs out of something. And so we, we haven't got quite the same fast turnaround as when we started because we're much more particular now. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then also, I don't know if you can tell us, but do you know where the Jurassic World exhibition is headed next? As far as I'm aware, they, they should be selling tickets if, they've got, if they're doing it properly. It's going to Madrid. Nice. And then I'm, I'm not sure that I think they plan to keep that show running for a long time. And, and unlike the the Walk with Dinosaurs tour that's in Europe, the museum show sits down for a good few months and so it's a different kind of installation. Uh, so it tends to go into a space for a, you know, up to six months. But the, the, the intention with that one is it'll keep going for, for a few years, all, all going well. Nice. Uh, as, you know, in keeping with the ongoing Jurassic World franchise. Yeah, I'm really hoping it makes it to California eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's possible. It's possible. Yeah, just speak nicely to the producers. I <laughs> <laughs> have to get their information so I can pester them. <laughs> yeah, I'll do, please, yes. <laughs> yeah, then you might have to come out here to uh, reanimate. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I don't mind. I'll, I'll make the effort. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't think I have any other questions. Is there anything else you want to share? Well, I just I just point out that 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 Creature Technology Company is it's it's because we have this huge team of very smart people. I mean, I'm just very fortunate that that you know I'm backed by this you know, monster team of of very smart people from all over the place. And so this is this is the thing is that you don't, this stuff doesn't happen by accident. It's only because there's dozens of of really clever technical and artistic people who come together to make these things. It's just such a great place to work. I'm very very fortunate. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, the behind the scenes photos and all the videos I was watching, it looks amazing. And the, the yeah. stuff that you come up with, even just how to work these puppets and everything. Yeah, clearly you have multiple people puppeteering these large 
dinosaurs, you've got to have a lot of people involved to make the show look good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And we have now, we have like a sort of alumni across the world when, as the show's travelled, you sort of gather different puppeteers. <laughs> and so, you know, some that, some that worked on the show, on the Dinosaur Show, and now work on King Kong and others, you know, who first worked with us on How to Train Your Dragon and now back working on the dinosaurs. So once people are familiar with our, our approach, then you want to use them again because they, they know how to make the things look good. Yeah, makes sense. Very cool. I think we had a moment when after you emailed us to tell us how the walking with dinosaurs, the, the puppeteers actually worked. We kind of we had a moment like, oh, that makes so much more sense. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is that, it's, that hopefully that when you're watching a show, if you're thinking about how they're working, you're not actually enjoying the show. Like that's one of our, our sort of gauges as to how well it's going. If people are caught up in the performance, then they're not thinking about how it's being done. Like, you know, with a magic trick, mm -hmm. if you're obsessing about how it's done, you're kind of not enjoying the theatre of it. So we want to make sure you're actually enjoying the story and the characters uh, as they're intended and not obsessing about the technical detail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely works very well. <laughs> especially as compared to like some of the the like very run-of-the-mill animatronics where the the mouth kind of just like opens and closes and the neck jerkily goes 12 degrees side to side yeah it's, it's because it's actually quite difficult to make um that make these things flow properly like that they're the way they're often designed is they operate one axis at a time or program one axis at a time which means you don't get this overlapping fluid movement so with our stuff it's it's like mixing all the movements together to get overlapping and sympathetic movements. And that's, that's the key to it really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it works. It's so, it works so well. It does. <laughs> well, well, thank you. We'll just, we'll just keep trying to do that. And, and I absolutely want to, want to convince um, someone to, to, to throw money at some new dinosaurs so it can, because it's such a, a wonderful range of stuff that keeps appearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So is there anywhere people can go to learn more about your work or new projects you have coming up? www.creaturetechnology.com will get you to our website and various videos of our projects, this sort of archival stuff on that. Uh, if you're in Orlando, you can go and see our King Kong uh, on the Reign of Kong ride. If you're in New York, you can go and see our King Kong there. If you're in Europe at the moment, you can see Walk with Dinosaurs uh, or the Jurassic World exhibition. That's the stuff that's out and about on Melbourne Museum here. Um, we're sort of gathering a, a, a backlog of <laughs> bits and pieces that people can go and see. One day we're hoping to get a, you know, make a book of the history of, of how this has, has all come together. And I've been working on that for a few years now, but that's that's still a few years away, I think. Hmm. It's, uh, that yeah, would be it's, amazing. It's, um, yeah, it was, I, I made a compilation for, for Jerry, who's, you know, the, as I said, the, the man who made it possible, funding us. And uh, and we made it like a, it's kind of like a picture book of the 10 years of the company. And so now trying to write something which actually accompanies that's, that, that history, that's, that's the next challenge. Cool. Very cool. We'll make it available to the public when you're done. Please. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I, we certainly shall. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about all the amazing puppets that you've made. Well, thank you very much uh, for talking to me. It's been absolutely delightful, and I, I'm still working my way through the through the back catalogue. I'm a bit late <laughs> to the party there, but uh, James, one of our engineers, introduced me to it, and so I'm enjoying it very much. Well, I've, got, I've got I've, I've got a lot of <laughs> a lot of time ahead of me, a lot of listening to do. That's very exciting. <laughs> Thanks again, Philip, for chatting with us. We had a really good time and learned a lot. 
Yeah, we had a discussion about one of his projects that is not family friendly that we're going to put in the premium content. But it was maybe my favorite discussion that we've had in it an interview. Did make Garrett laugh very hard. Yes, and then he sent us pictures of what he was talking about afterwards, which was also wonderful. So thank you so much. And also thanks to James for reaching out to us from Creature Technology and letting Philip know about our podcast so that we could interview him. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Cedrosaurus, which was a request from Lainey Powers, so thanks. It was a brachiosaurid sauropod that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Utah in the U.S., and it was described in 1999 by Tidwell, Carpenter, and Brooks. The name means cedar lizard, you may have guessed. <laughs> it was named after the cedar mountain formation where it was found. See, it's not just China that does that. It's not, no. And the type of species <laughs> is Cedrosaurus vizcapfe. I think that's how it's pronounced. But the species name is in honor of Carol Weisskopf, quote, for her hard work in the field and lab. The fossils were found from at least three individuals. It's similar to the Brachiosaurid Eucomeritus from southern England and Brachiosaurus from the Morrison Formation in the U.S. Cedarosaurus is related to Veninosaurus, but it was more gracile, especially the forelimbs. Cedarosaurus was herbivorous, and it was medium-sized for a Brachiosaurid. It was probably a tall browser like other brachiosaurids, which would allow it to live among other herbivorous dinosaurs so it could reach up high for its food, basically. Many gastrolists have been found. Those are those smooth stones that they use to digest, to help with digestion. Yeah, grind up that plant material mm -hmm. to a nice tasty mush. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Easily digestible, at least. <laughs> And Frank Sanders, Kim Manley, and Kenneth Carpenter did a study in 2001 of 115 gastrolists from Cedarosaurus. They were found near the skeleton with signs that it was still in the dinosaur's body while it still had soft tissue. I think that's mostly like acid etching is what they look for. Mm, maybe the smoothness too. Yeah. These gastrolists weighed 15 pounds or 7 kilograms total. Wow. Yep. Most were spherical, though some were large and had irregular shapes which would have been hard to swallow. Oof. And this means Cedarosaurus either liked these for some reason or just didn't really care about the shape. Or they just weren't that smart. Hard to say. <laughs> but as we mentioned, the gastrolists either helped to grind or crush the plant matter. Yeah, gastrolists are really interesting. How you put them in a gizzard, it's like a big muscle that contracts and can grind up food. And also how long it would have taken to digest. Yeah. <laughs> Basically turn the plant matter into some kind of stew inside. Yeah. It helps if you grind it up real finely first, mm -hmm. especially since they didn't really chew their food. Yeah. 
So good call, Cedarosaurus. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day comes from the Journal of Theoretical Biology in an article written by Ernesto Blanco recently. And what he hypothesizes is that the shape of theropod feet, like T-Rex, may have helped to camouflage the vibrations of their walking. So that iconic scene in Jurassic Park where it's walking along and the water's vibrating. Basically, the, because of the shape of the foot, there might have been less vibrations in front of the foot than to the sides, which obviously is useful if you're trying to sneak up on something and eat it. And he further says that if they were crouching, they could have even further reduced the vibrations from their feet. So pretty scary way to get eaten. And also just another element of how dinosaurs didn't roar and stomp towards their prey when they're going to eat it, like in a lot of movies. They would sneak up very quietly, just like every other predator. Kind of imagine a lion in the brush, <laughs> you know, really quietly getting ready to pounce on something. That's how real predators hunt, not screaming and thumping around because <laughs> you don't want them running away from you makes it harder to eat you want them to be surprised and that wraps up this episode of i know dino thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes and consider signing up for our patreon because if you join by october 21st just a couple days from now you can get bonus rewards like our coasters or a physical photo card from us from SVP or other things. So check out our page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. Thanks for listening and until next time. Good day.